0: Welcome to the Startup Competitors Podcast, where we talk with early-stage entrepreneurs to understand what information they use to inform product roadmap, strategy, and market differentiation. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we have Scott
1: Massey, who is one of the co-founders and the CEO of Helaponics, and with him is Ivan Ball, who is also co-founder and the CTO. Welcome, guys. So why don't we start? One of you, give me the elevator pitch for Helaponics.
2: Helaponics provides consumers with the GrowPod. The GrowPod is an automated hydroponic appliance that allows you to grow fresh food in your home. And our business model could be described as Keurig for food, where we install the IoT-enabled device once and a recurring subscription of C-pods going on a monthly fulfillment cycle after that. So we turn everyday people into farmers, regardless of their prior knowledge of agriculture, time available, or even space inside their home. I love carrot for food.
1: So what kinds of things am I growing? Like, I'm
2: clearly not growing potatoes, right? Right, right. So tubers, anything that grows under the ground like that, carrots, peanuts, okay. require a lot of extra root space. And you have a pretty slow growth rate with those varieties that don't really work well with hydroponics. What we focus on are high-value, high-term crops, so culinary herbs, basil, cilantro, mint, leafy green vegetables, romaine lettuce, uh, spinach, uh, cabbage, kale. Things like that, that you have a high food safety concern, have the highest likelihood of E. coli, salmonella outbreaks, and also perish very, very quickly. So these are the things that people really gravitate towards our branch because the freshness is unmatched with what they can get at the grocery store. So the taste is overall superior. Yeah. And some of the other
0: things we started growing, jalapeno peppers. We've successfully grown uh, marigold flowers as well, and some small hybrid varieties of cherry tomatoes.
1: Awesome. Okay. How big is a pod? Give me an idea. Like how much, where is this thing sitting? And
2: is it in my kitchen? Is it like, what? like, what does this look like? So the machine itself is the size of a dishwasher, identically uh, about 24 inches by 24 inches, about 34.5 inches tall. It fits under the counter. It's a very aesthetically appealing appliance that will blend in seamlessly with the other appliances you have with a beautiful stainless steel front. The physical pods, which are kind of the K cop uh, similarity, has about a one inch diameter maximum, and it's about two inches in height. Those are the little pods that actually plug into the machine, and the user is able to grow consistently. One pod gives you one plant.
1: Got it. How hard is this? What's involved in install? like is this something I could install on my own if I just took out a couple of cabinets and wanted to put it in
2: there? or you don't even have to take the cabinets out. Uh, we have a unique design with multiple utility patents on it that gives us a pretty unfair advantage of just having the lowest energy consumption of any system on the market. And that's typically the biggest drawback for this industry because if you're spending more money on the power bill than you'd otherwise spend at the grocery store, we're not solving any problems for you we're just giving you a more expensive grocery bill overall so this system could go to any standard 110 volt outlet in your home we have people putting it in attics garages basements and even in their kitchen they want to have it front and center for the company they have a And it can be plumbed in. Uh, It does use about eight gallons of water per month. So we recommend using a quarter inch water line, just like your refrigerator. But if you don't want to do that, that's fine. It has a standalone option and you'll just get remote notifications pushed to your cell phone of when you need to manually add water.
1: Love it. That's awesome. Current status of the company. How many of these do you have? Have you sold that are out there? Any vanity metrics you can share about where you guys
2: are on this journey? Yeah, so the company's coming up on its uh, three-year anniversary this November. So we started this as students while we were undergrad at Purdue University. Uh, we originally competed in business plan competitions and we're building prototypes in our uh, college apartment just kind of as a hobby, realized it was an expensive hobby and we needed to get some funding, hence entering into the business plan competitions. Early 2018 is when we started selling our first data models to early adopters as paying customers. Uh, so we produced 20 of those units, about 15 customers purchased the grill pods, and we have 12 active subscribers today. So these were people who simply responded to the press releases that we had of the system and wanted to buy it once it was available. Now that we've secured some recent investment funding, we're actually now producing our full production model with a dedicated manufacturer. We're expecting to have over 100 users by the end of this year. What is
1: And I think you said this before, and I either missed it or forgot what's involved in the subscription? That's me just getting the K-cups, the pods on a regular basis?
2: Yeah, so it's actually the fertilizers and nutrient packages, which are pre-measured for you to simply put into the system whenever you get a notification telling you when to do so, and the physical pods themselves. The pods are currently a polypropylene plastic cup. Uh, Imagine a little tiny K-cup with little holes all the way around it to uh, water in and root growth out. Inside of that pod, we use a growing media called Rockwool. It's essentially calcium, which is spun at a really high temperature, kind of like cotton candy, but gives you a very nice porous medium that gives you great aeration and root growth. And then we're very particular about finding non-GMO, organically certified seed suppliers, which are impregnated in. So for you, the hardest thing you got to decide is what you're going to grow first. The pods come in a box once a month and you plug in place and you forget. How many times have you given this pitch? <laughs> you know, I think the benefit of starting a company when you're broke and really <laughs> <laughs> delivering newspapers to pay for it as students, you get used to doing it a lot, especially at these pitch competitions, because they put you through the ringer. And Scott, you are so freaking good. Like, <laughs> y- y- like just taking something
1: and making it as accessible as you're making it, even the simple things of like, it's calcium spun at a high temperature and it's kind of like cotton candy, like that makes it super accessible for somebody who's li- who doesn't necessarily know what you know, right? Like it's, f- it's fantastic. So, unpack that founding story a little bit more. Like, wh- and like why? Why this start- startup? Like, how did two college students decide I need to grow fresher lettuce in my kitchen?
2: Yeah, so I originally had no experience in agriculture. Um, I originally worked in the oil and natural gas industry as a mechanical engineer. So all fluid control systems have brought liquids from point A to point B. And then my junior year at Purdue, I saw a job opening looking for a student who was a mechanical engineer, familiar with of fluid mechanics, to work on a NASA-funded hydroponic research study. And I was really lucky to get the introduction to the study, the whole technology of hydroponics, and more importantly, meet my co-founder, who was originally my co-worker, Ivan Ball.
0: Yeah. And we actually grew up near the same area, but never met until our uh, senior year Junior. junior year on the uh, NASA research study. But for me, growing up, I've always been around agriculture. So I'm from a small town, uh, rural area. And uh, my first job was uh, picking melons in a field. Moved over <laughs> to Pioneer, where uh, we detasseled corn. And then from there, it's just, I started actually working when I graduated at Grain Processing Corporation. So I've always been around the ag industry, and it's, it's been a
2: pretty exciting road. But the NASA research study is really what just opened our eyes to the industry. What we were specifically doing was building an airtight growth chamber that used hydroponics and had sensors monitoring the amount of CO2, carbon dioxide, going into the chamber and oxygen leaving the chamber. And we had an addressable LED array that allowed us to change the colors and ratio of colors shining on the plants. And in real time, we can actually see how these different LED spectrums would affect growth rates. Uh, that research is actually was used to steer the design for the current led array which is growing about 12 heads of lettuce at this moment on the international space station and for us it seemed like a no-brainer hydroponics uses 95 percent less water than conventional agriculture if it's in a controlled environment you don't have to worry about the climate no pesticides it's all fresh and there and one of the best benefits is you have triple the growth rates And the best comparison I can make is when you put a plant in the field, it's fingering its roots around, it's looking for nutrients in the soil, and it's exerting a lot of energy to do so. All the while, it's constantly battling pests and disease outbreaks and different climate conditions, You have losses. We take away all of that variability and give you a consistent environment that's exactly what the plants need. So if I had to make a comparison, it's like going from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle to being an all-you-can-eat buffet where the nutrients are just being spoon-fed right to you. And that's where the idea kind of sunk in our mind. You hear this great technology. It eliminates our dependency on climate for farming. And how is it being applied today? A massive stationary warehouses, kind of like the building we're in now. And to me, that seems so counterproductive because the inherent benefit is it's a mobile technology. It, it democratizes agriculture. And that's when the curing for food idea really kind of started to cook in our mind. Another analogy I love to make is the ice industry evolution. Ice has always been dependent on climate. You got it once a yes. year when it was yeah, cold yeah. enough for it to freeze. But the breakthrough in the industry was refrigeration. You could now have these massive ice factories in the early 1900s, and they would deliver you a block of ice, a perishable good that you had to buy on a regular basis. How do you get your ice now? I just go to my refrigerator. Yeah, you have your own personal ice factory. And when you look at all the reasons why that industry ultimately decentralized itself, it's almost impossible to find an exception as to why agriculture for the crops we're growing are not going to follow that same suit. Now, cereal crops, corn, wheat, soybeans, that's going to stay outside for many, many decades to come. But for leafy greens, culinary herbs, you're going to see a shift happen where the majority of these crops will be grown indoors in the next few generations. Hmm. What's the difference between the, kind of the current model that's out there today and the full production model? Apart from aesthetics um, and it not being made in a garage with 3D printed components anymore, we've really identified a lot of opportunities to first improve the uh, user experience. So having a great connectivity to the home, we learned very quickly, if you can successfully grow plants, you know, when you're an educated person in the field, that's great. But that by no means is an indication that, you know, Linda down the street with no knowledge of agriculture, no knowledge of how even Wi-Fi works is going to be able to replicate that process. So we had a lot of safeguards that we started to put in, kind of watchdog timers to make sure we weren't going to have to deal with connectivity issues when the power goes out, when the kid unplugs the Wi-Fi, all those kind of weird use case scenarios. And we've also found a lot more reliable suppliers. Uh, We started working with hobbyist-grade electrical components in our system. Eventually, things like corrosion started to happen. Mm -hmm. You have uh, these nutrient salts that can crystallize in certain metallic properties in certain areas, and that can lead to mechanical and electrical failure. So switching everything to stainless steel, marine and food-grade, and even pharmaceutical-grade components uh, just gave us a much more reliable system you're officially pitching my next product that i launch
1: like it's that's happening all right so uh, step back for a second look at if you if we looked at the market who are the closest competitors in this market which can you're perfectly allowed to name co- companies you don't have to do that you can also talk about categories of competition like it could be your biggest competitors of food delivery, like a green bean, right? Like a grocery delivery service. I I don't know. But when you guys think about competition in terms of go-to-market, what comes to mind?
2: You know, first you got to look at the demographic because food is a wide, wide category as is farm equipment and as is hydroponic growing equipment. We didn't invent hydroponics. That's been around for thousands of years. The ancient Egyptians used it in the Nile, the Aztecs had floating rafts, Um, it's been around. The breakthrough has been LEDs. They've made indoor growing very energy efficient, so you've kind of seen a proliferation of the technology in the last 10-20 years. What makes us unique is that we're the first system, I would say, that's genuinely useful. There's a number of competitors out there that sell small little desktop units, which is fine. It was a great entrance to the market, but it's not useful to the user. It's not cost effective. It's not really giving you anything that a flower pot couldn't otherwise get. We went with a pretty tech-heavy route, but you constantly deal with that dilemma. Everyone says, make it simple. Is your product simple or is the user experience simple? We prefer to have a simple user experience. And what we've done is automated the process that you're not going to have any more than about 10 minutes of maintenance on a weekly basis. And that includes you harvesting and planting your pods from the system. As far as the competitors, there's three main limitations. It's yields. The systems that do exist don't grow much food to really make it a viable source of food for you consistently. Their energy and efficiency. So they're so hungry on the power bill that it's not saving you money or even a cost-effective way to have food. And food safety a lot of these systems have absolutely no way of keeping the system clean. There's no protocol of reminding the user that you need to sanitize the system or having some sort of dishwashable element. So we'll be one of the first UL approved systems in the not too distant future, which gives us a pretty unfair advantage overall. Yeah, that's awesome. What's, I,
1: I should have asked this earlier. Uh, and it's going to bug me if I don't ask now. What What's the payback period on this unit once it's in production so and maybe that depends on what kind of food i grow but wasn't that wide a variety of the things that you said what do you anticipate like my break-even is if i spend x dollars on this it's y months or years until i've until i've made my money back what do you guys think that is
2: so if you're doing culinary herbs something basil you know local farmers market uh Locally grown organic pricing could be anywhere from $10 to $15 per pound. We have a system that can grow 200 pounds of produce annually. So that right there has an ROI of well within a year. And that includes your subscription, the hardware cost, and the energy consumption all in. Now, we have people growing a variety of different crops, some of which are just leafy greens like romaine lettuce. One of the cheapest things you can buy at the grocery store. But the people who are subscribing to that are young and expecting mothers, people who are hypersensitive of what they're giving their kids. And what we're finding is that once the kids are a part of the process, they see the produce grow, they put the pot in and they take a plant out, they develop a connection to the food that you don't get at the grocery store because you don't know who packed it and you don't even know how many people touched it before you. And that's kind of a scary thought. And that peace of mind kind of reinforced with better tasting food that the kids are more inclined to eat is, to be honest with you, an instantaneous payback. I mean, you spend what fifty dollars, hundred bucks at a nice candlelit dinner somewhere at a restaurant. You do that because you want the experience and you want that high quality food. So there's kind of a, a human element, I would say, that goes deeper than just the ROI of the metrics of what you're paying and not paying. Because once you're talking about health, I mean, that's an investment no one's going to take lightly. Nice, awesome, good answer. This episode is brought to you by Full Stack PEO. Most founders start companies because they figured out a better way to solve a problem or serve a need, not because they love tracking payroll, filling out compliance forms, and explaining employee benefits packages. And yet, all that stuff still has to be done. That's why there's Full Stack PEO. Full Stack PEO specializes in turnkey HR for emerging companies, not just those core services, but advice and expertise that help founders maximize employee potential. Curious? Find out more at fullstackpeo.com.
1: Back to competition. So, when you play out this market three years from now uh, or five years from now, what do, you, what do you two anticipate
2: this market looks like? Ah, uh, well, we've got some things cooking right now that could rapidly accelerate our uh, footprint in the market, getting a lot of hardware out there a lot sooner. You know, I pitch a lot that our goal is to become the world's largest farming company without owning a single acre of land. That's actually a fairly obtainable goal because the system is 500 times increase in efficiency use of land. That's what you'd otherwise see. And that same four foot, uh, I'm sorry, that two foot by two foot square piece of land, which is limited to climate availability. And that's only 250,000 units in the marketplace. And in three to five years could potentially be at that scale. And I'd say our goal, too, is to just drive the price down to where
0: it's highly affordable. Mm-hmm. So that way, anybody can now have their own. They can. We want to make everyone a farmer, basically, to have access to this fresh food.
2: Yeah. So right now, we're at a pretty high price point. We're at $2,000. It's a luxury product. There's no denying that. And we have a more affluent demographic. But it's been interesting to see... I would say less affluent people purchase this. This is a funny story. We had a uh, YouTube promotional campaign where YouTube said, if you guys agree to buy $300 worth of AdWords, we'll send a videographer to your garage and we'll make the video for free. Uh, Wait, just wow. do it. That's yeah. a thing? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, that's cool. They must have someone out there kind of like, I guess, curating who they send that to. I've... To a few other startups who said they got that and they didn't think it was legit.
1: That's, I would not have thought that was legit. Yeah, but
2: uh, I can tell you it's very legit. And we did it and we made a sale to some guy in Indianapolis. Never heard of the guy. And it wasn't the best neighborhood. I'll be honest with you, grass was about as tall as this tabletop and all the yards out there. And I myself was the person delivering the grill pod. And you sent me your location and you're like, if I don't call back in two hours, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not going to home and I knock on the door and a guy answers it and says, what do you want? I said, well, sir, your grow pods here he goes great. Put it right there. Go, sir, you're an early adopter. I'm going to plug it in. I'll connect you to the Wi-Fi. the whole nine yards. This is the white glove installation experience. I don't care. Put it right there on my porch. I'm thinking, uh, oh, I don't know what's going on here. Maybe I don't even want to go inside this house. So I tell him, here's my business card. If you have any questions, please do not hesitate to call me. He looks at the card and it says co-founder. He goes, "Oh." co-founder. I thought you're just some worthless intern. <laughs> nice. No, <laughs> no. Nope, nope. Next best thing. It's Scott. Next right best thing. <laughs> and I uh, says, well, let me talk to you. I'm a, I'm a truck driver. You know, it's a blue collar job. I eat a lot of fast food because I'm on the road a lot. And I'm now a diabetic because of that. I eat poorly. And my doctor told me that if I don't start eating a more healthier plant-based diet, I could either spend more on food or die sooner. Pick one. And he bought a grow pod because he looked at his market. A lot of Indianapolis, unfortunately, is a food desert. Hopefully that's going to change. And it looks like there's a lot of good initiatives doing that already. But that is the case today. And he didn't have a lot of fresh food options nearby. He was looking for a way to grow his own food. Well, he doesn't have the time to do the hassle with all these manual systems, connecting lights. And once you talk about automating all the kind of analog systems out there, forget about it. The average person, I mean, I struggle to even do something like that. We were the first fully automated platform that was reliable, nearby, and affordable for him. And he decided to buy it. So... You're going to see a price point that's going to become more affordable over the next few years. You're probably going to see some financing options open up to people that might not have $2,000 or a little less than that to fork out, but are able to do it on a payment plan. Especially if you kind of look at the fact that we're kind of augmenting what you're already spending at the grocery store today. So really, I just kind of see a lot of different, different uh, demographics purchasing this product than what already does it now. We've had three kind of interesting categories, purchases. Restaurants want higher-end culinary herbs, and it's a marketing statement too. Everyone says locally grown, but the dirty secret is there's no regulation on that word. Locally grown could mean a 1,000 miles away or one mile away. There's no differentiation according to the USDA or the FDA at this moment. So having it in the store, that's proof. And I mean, it's a glowing box of plants. It catches the eye. And then we also have schools purchasing it. We never expected that. So when you asked if you could do it, I was going to say, literally kids do it and do it now. And they do it pretty well. A lot of schools are being mandated. Kids are a lot smarter than I am. (laughs) And we learn from them watching how they interact from it. It's It's a really interesting experience. But they're being mandated to include agriculture in their STEM curriculum, which is now being called STEAM in uh, a lot of cases, including agriculture in that acronym. But a greenhouse, a good automated greenhouse, it's going to have some sort of data uh, play for the students to interact with and have that education experience. Easily hundred, two hundred thousand dollars 200000 This is a great modular solution. I mean, literally 100 times cheaper than that to have in the classroom. But I'd see all of those categories kind of growing. I see there being potentially curriculums built around this for more classrooms. I see more restaurants having it in a B2B play and potentially larger systems as well. Uh, we hold multiple utility patents on our rotary aeroponic design, which could easily be licensed to a commercial facility if someone wanted to pursue that opportunity. What
1: are some of the new technologies that may not be here today, but you think might be coming? in the near future that have you excited for how those could be applicable and what you you
0: two are doing? Yeah. Vision's a huge one. So there's something called hyperspectral imaging, where you can actually look at the nutrients in the plant, find deficiencies, and then now you can apply more nutrients uh, whenever it's actually needed so we can have a fully automated dosing system based on how hungry your plants actually are. Uh, and then there's also a play with UV light and for sanitation. Wait,
1: real quick, visioning. So the herb, hy- say... Hyperspectral. Yeah,
0: they, that, hyperspectral. How far away is that, do you think? The technology's there now. It's a matter of the research being dumped into the studies yeah. on growing the plants and
2: actually making sure it's accurately yeah. reading the leaf. Yeah, down. there's a lot of R&D that needs to be done to really train that sort of machine learning yeah. algorithm. But that could even be taken to printing out a nutritional data sheet of, You just ate this. Mm -hmm. Here's the breakup of it. And uh, there's some really cool opportunities at a consumer level when you're interacting with the individual who's both growing and consuming the plants to ask them, how did that taste? And if you said it was a little too bitter, a little too sweet, maybe the texture was too tough or too limp, you didn't like it, it won't happen again. There's ways to actually implement machine learning algorithms in the future that will survey the user from those parameters and actually manipulate the growing environment naturally. We're just changing lighting, fan speeds, I mean, nothing synthetic, there's no genetic modifications happening here. It's just an intimate relationship with the user asking them, how can we make it better? And actually doing that so you have a system that actually learns from the user and tastes better the more it learns from them.
1: If you are you familiar with a startup out there called Genopallet? It's like a 23andMe for your food intake. So they do. That's um, awesome. And in fact, they actually take it. You can leverage a a 23andMe kit if you've already done one. They'll take your 23andMe results and they'll do this, the analysis for what foods are going to be optimized based on your uh, biology. And DNA and, uh, and then, or if you've not done one, you can just, uh, you can do the same cotton swab with them and they'll, they'll go run everything for you. But you basically get back this report that says, based on your genetic makeup, these are the things that are probably going to be more favorable to your body type. These are the things that are going to be less favorable to your body type. This is where the jury might be out. We don't know. It's up to you. Go experiment. But it, it really does a super interesting breakdown of like, so for me, because I did, I'm not going to see this pitch and not go by a report, right? That's, I'm, I, I'm that guy. So I go by the report and it's like, you need more vitamin C than most people. So look for these types of foods. And it gives you this whole readout of based on, so it does, one thing it does is like, these are the nutrients that you need. And then it tells you where to find them. And then it tells you, how, and you know, like, and basically then of course it can all build towards food plans and stuff like that. What would be super interesting with what you guys are talking about, right? Is like you could, you could literally start to tie into like based on your genetic code. These are the pods that should be coming. And here's how you could potentially even optimize the plant that's in there based on nutrient dosing and things like that to get specific characteristics. Super interesting. And that startup still pretty early but they've got they've got some pretty good traction i should have them on the podcast the science behind what they've done and how they got there is phenomenal like it just really blew me away so anyway so that like as you're talking about that i'm thinking like whoa so you'd like really
2: customize it's a data-driven kind of industry yeah. a lot of people are familiar with amazon acquiring whole foods i mean that's pretty well known at this point yeah. but with a little lesser known is that Amazon and SoftBank put $200 million, and I think there's been some more follow-up funding, could be wrong, into a vertical farm in the West Coast called Plenty. There's a connection between the two. Amazon wants to consolidate the entire agricultural process from production to distribution to consumption to the user. Uh, This industry is moving a lot faster, and I think a lot of people realize. Wow. Yeah, I didn't
1: realize that. That's amazing. All right, I cut you off, Ivan. Uh, You were going to talk about UV next, I think. So
0: there's uh, some more lighting plays um, that we could utilize. So UV light, it actually sanitizes. Um, So there's kind of a play for sanitizing our water as it runs. So that way we can get rid of any pathogens or bacteria that may develop over time. So things like that as well. Awesome.
1: Any other kind of emerging technologies outside of?
0: Um, We didn't mention the uh, uh, multi-spectrum can change the spectrum of light. So that will actually what he was talking about manipulating the taste and the color and the texture of plants. Uh, you can do all that just by adjusting the the red, the blue, and the green in the spectrum of light. Uh, so there's actually a lot of research being dumped into that right now.
2: Yeah, from Philips to Osram, you're seeing a lot of huge LED manufacturers, and a lot of this growth is international. If you look at Israel, uh, they're one of the best hydroponic countries in the world. You know. Conflict region. Uh, okay. So the likelihood of food imports being blocked is very high. And uh, a region of the world where water is at a premium as well. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So those two factors are huge. The UAE, you have people, some of the most wealthy people in the world, and they want the best tasting food in the world. So there's a lot of vertical farm action happening there. And Asia might be the biggest of all. You're talking about the most urban dense areas in the world and some of the largest mistrust towards produce that's being sold because. A lot of times, the regulation of food safety just, it's not cutting it in some of these areas. People aren't looking for, you know, reactive solutions of recalls, finding out, throw away your produce that could be contaminated. They want proactive solutions that are going to eliminate the likelihood or minimize it if possible. It's making you hungry, isn't it?
1: Well,
2: (laughs) I'm always (laughs) hungry.
1: Uh, No, so I'm trying to think of like, so uh, this this will be poorly articulated, but um, that confluence of you guys and and I'm sure there are probably others, right running, but maybe not at the, with the in-home scale that you guys are leading the way with, but you know, you guys running after the direct to consumer face Mm of it, Amazon trying to do vertical integration, you know, tons of research going into the space. So if it, if it's coming as quickly as you indicate that it is, which I'm not challenged. Like, this is not me challenging. Let's just take that as a given, right. Or maybe even faster than you think it'll be here. What does that mean for you in terms of how you think about a go-to-market strategy? I would love, like, I would love your thoughts on whether or not like from a customer acquisition perspective, has that, how does that influence how you think about it from a customer retention perspective? How does that change? From a, from a patent perspective and what you even think is patentable in a market that's changing that quickly. I, I like, I just, if that's a given, what does that mean? Right. Because if you'd asked people 20 years ago, what would you do if you had 5G? And then you explained what 5G was connectivity, right? Like just, just like basically and 20 years ago, that would be like, basically, if you had unlimited data streaming to your phone, which that would have been interesting twenty years ago, but uh, you know, you have, you have unlimited data streaming to your Palm Pilot anytime, anywhere. What would you do? I don't know that twenty years ago, very many people could even articulate how to use that much data, right? Like, and how that would affect how they thought about a Palm Pilot. So, like, so that's basically what you're saying, right? This new technology will will not only become ubiquitous, but will become. maybe the dominant player in in consumer-facing food consumption, certainly in, in certain parts of the world. So if that's true, how does that change things? And then the really interesting question there for me to you guys is, how does that influence how you think about taking your business to market?
2: Yeah. You know, when we started, like I said, neither one of us had cash to start a business. And one thing... I think we were really lucky to kind of have bestowed to us, depending on how you consider lucky, is that I was delivering newspapers for the exponent produced newspaper at night. So it was a a 1am to 4am shift every day my senior year. And I don't have to say that's not the best shift anyone wants to have. But every time we won a competition, I developed a really good relationship with the managing editor of that paper, and we publicized it. And I learned that usually once you get one publication, there'll be three or four that will essentially copy it. They'll kind of mimic the exact same thing using that guerrilla marketing technique of making sure that we are constantly getting our name out there one way or another. And if it wasn't a competition, we were giving STEM talks at inner city schools you know kids had no idea this industry existed there's no financial gain for us being there but we would get coverage and it got our name out there just constantly and resiliently doing that that's how we were able to sell those first units without spending any money on our ad words except that one youtube promotional campaign all of these people started emailing us and saying when the product's ready let me know When we finally had that MVP ready in his garage and we knew it was working enough that we could start selling it, I reached out to all these people and collected $500 pre-order deposits. And with that validation that there's people money down, wanted to buy it, we went back to our economic development coalition in Evansville, which is great organization. and recommend any entrepreneur to contact them. And we accessed a uh, grow local loan that was able to cover through the remainder of the inventory, um, had all the metal work done at a shop in Anderson, Indiana, printed our parts, did everything ourselves in that original assembly, and then hand delivered them to the users, collected the remaining 1,500 balance, and paid off the loan before interest was even due. In that case, I think we were. Uh, I think God smiled on us. We were a little luckier than we even expected. We were, but going forward, clearly that kind of word of mouth strategy is not going to cut it. So we've looked at a lot of different options. You know, we've considered big box retail, but the reality is, big box retail stores uh, they're pretty tough on their manufacturers. They put a lot of hard expectations on there, and in some instances, they even write things into the agreement that whatever isn't sold has to be sold back, and then they credit themselves on the next shipment. And a lot of companies go bankrupt trying to compete in that market. And we had to be honest with ourselves. We were nowhere near the scale or size to even consider something like that. So in our case, we are e-commerce through and through, at least at this stage. And we've built some cool features around that strategy that I think complements it well. And we've looked at groups like Nest Thermostat and the Ring Doorbell as to what made them successful. And and even the Instant Pot, that's another great one, kind of that kind of pressure time cooker. Most of their sales were within communities. They might make one sale within the neighborhood, and then someone might be sharing the video. Did anyone see the sketchy guy walking around. Uh, no, but how'd you get that video It's a ring? And that kind of made the referral happen. So we built in a really cool feature that every person who has a grill pod, as our tower spins around, it creates a time-lapse gif of the plants growing and an automated email to them so they can share that on their Are social media Are you freaking feed. kidding me? Yeah, it's pretty cool. That is brilliant. So you put it on your social media feed. Any friend who sees that clicks the link, they get $100 off their grill pod. The person who made the sale gets a free month of seed pods. It's an expensive product, but that also is a benefit because we can afford to have some fun marketing stuff like that on our budget and our customer acquisition strategy. And that little content generation machine automatically being produced and churned out, that's great for Facebook advertisements. That's great for us sponsoring and boosting post of people who are real customers. They bought the product and they just love it. And they're happy to tell the world, we'll boost that. That's a better selling point than anything mm-hmm. he and I can say than any social media influencer can do. Cause those are real people. Yep. And now, I mean, that's basically going to be free marketing
0: for us. And now we're turning every pod owner into a sales army. So they can just click the link. Now they get, they can even eat for free. If they can, yeah, literally yeah. just keep yeah. shipping
2: them uh, seed pods and get more customers. Have
1: you guys talked to new home builders?
2: We have, I mean, just kind of anecdotally, nothing really serious. Um, We've noticed that it's probably a better option for us to kind of go with the targeted words, get people who are kind of already identifying themselves as the organic consumer than getting so many physical units out there that may or may not sell something just because we're small. We don't have the ability to produce you know, 100 units and not sell them. Those 100 units have to be sold. Got it. In the future, sure. I think that would absolutely happen. Uh, There's been some new like IoT-focused apartment buildings going up, or we've talked to developers, and they said we would love to have this in the model showroom, and we would love to have it there, but uh, we're not at that stage of growth yet. All right. If people are interested in finding your product, where do they do that? They could either look at us on social media. We are GrowPod official. That's G R O. P-O-D-O-F-F-I-C-I-A-L and it's also on our website at growpod.io G-R-O-P-O-D.io where they can put a $500 deposit down for the next generation of full production units coming out fourth quarter of this year and after that it's uh, continued sales scaling after that Always be closing I love it all right, Scott, Ivan, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank, Thank you. And uh, we actually have a grow pod in the car in the parking lot, so if you want to check it out. Are you those. serious? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. It's growing right now. Yeah, we're doing that right now.
0: <laughs> All right, awesome. Thanks, guys. If you're thinking of launching a SaaS product, startup competitors can provide data on your closest competitors, survey potential users, or provide other product validation services. Learn more at startupcompetitors.com.